Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hagen Clark, your host, and I'm excited to introduce my special guests. That's plural to you, and that's a first for the show, so I'm excited about that. But first, I want to say thank you to everybody who's joining us. And uh, first, let me start off with an apology. We were supposed to do this yesterday. We did not end up doing it yesterday, and that was on me. And I forgot to take down the original video on YouTube, so I know there were some people in the live chat that weren't too happy with me, so I'm apologizing for that. That's my bad. Anyway, I also want to say thank you to everyone who's joining us, and thank you to our patron supporters. Thanks so much for your support because of your support. Get to do stuff like this, and you too can become a patron supporter by following the Patreon link in the description below and becoming a supporter. You get access to the bonus segment and different things like that. Now, I want to bring in my special guests. Again, that's plural. And I'm still new to this, so let's see what I can do here. Okay, so now we have Laura and John uh, live with us. Uh, Laura's been on the show before. You may remember her. And uh, she is now a famed Christian apologist on YouTube. Uh, she's an up-and-coming apologist I'm glad to have brought to the world. Uh, Laura, how are you doing? I'm doing really good. Thanks, Hayden. Uh, yeah, if anyone didn't watch the last video, um, Laura Robinson, PhD candidate, Duke University, and co-host of the New Testament Review podcast. Yes. And she has brought on her lovely husband, John. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Sorry, I meant to ask you beforehand. Depew? Yes, nailed it. Good yes. job. Yes, I'm very good at this. Uh, actually, I'm horrible. <laughs> I'm horrible with names. Really horrible. At, uh, well, you, well, you nailed it. Yeah. Uh, how are you doing, sir? Thanks so much uh, for joining me, uh, us uh, tonight. I really appreciate it. Um, sure. I'm excited to have you on. Go ahead and give us a brief introduction uh, of yourself and kind of uh, what you do. Sure, yeah. Um, I currently work on a pastoral staff at a church in Cary, North Carolina. Um, i I work as the director of faith formation specifically at that church, and I'm a graduate of Duke Divinity School. Um, and I've been working in Christian ministry for about six years now, which is crazy. Yeah, but yeah. time flies. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, again, I really appreciate it. Uh, Laura, uh, how have things uh, changed for you? I know you guys have both uh, been invited on to uh, s several different YouTube channels. How have things changed uh, for, for you guys since you've become acquainted with the, the craziness that is Christian YouTube? <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's definitely part of why I wanted to do this, because I, I think that one thing I've definitely noticed since I've started to do some of these interviews is that there's, um, there's a big chunk of Christianity, as it's currently practiced in the United States, that doesn't really have much of an online presence, um, and that being, you know, mainline Christianity, and also... Um, you know, the whole ex-evangelical movement is almost, a, it's largely online. Uh, but mainline Christianity and, you know, denominational Christianity tends to not have as much YouTube presence because as near as I can tell, YouTube is mostly about people fighting with each other. <laughs> and uh, mainline Christians have plenty of fighting to do uh, on their own time. So, uh, <laughs> so, so we thought we'd come and give a bit of a, a non-polemical uh, description of who we are and what we believe and... Uh, introduce people to that yeah so everybody in the live chat what you just heard is that laura's going to start a youtube channel <laughs> um but no that would be great you should definitely start a youtube channel maybe we'll see that in the future look at me the laura and john show and uh you guys can uh just, you know, just, yeah john i'm dragging you into this too <laughs> thanks man <laughs> uh so we we are here uh tonight to discuss um scare quotes progressive christianity um, before we, I start asking questions about uh, this um, different 
brand or flavor, I don't know what the correct term is there to use a, of Christianity as opposed to others. Um, why don't you, um, and both of you, uh, however you want to do it, tell us what this progressive Christianity is. Is that the correct term we should be using? Um, yeah, so yeah, I'll let y'all take it from there. So the thing that, you know, I was talking about responding to YouTube and the internet, and I think one thing that inspired us to do this is seeing progressive Christianity get discussed online. Um, Hayden, I think, actually has a has an episode of his show that is very much in line with that. And it seems like a few different kinds of traditions are getting lumped together under this heading of progressive, when there's actually a few different things happening there. Uh, one is the mainline Protestant church, right? So this is a, uh, a historical denominational tradition um, that is as old as the United States is, and as old as um, as old as Protestantism in America is, and this is um, this is a historical tradition with a long history of pedigree and working on theology on its own on its on its own on its own side. Um, a lot of this sort of emerged in reaction to the Scopes Monkey trial in the 1920s, when we had this big shift between fundamentalist Christians and um, in the the more mainline tradition, um, and then the other side of this is a lot more mo is a lot more modern, and this is um, sort of the deconversionist wing of what a lot of people are calling progressive Christianity. These are people who specifically come from evangelical backgrounds and go through some kind of deconversion process from evangelicalism, but still end up within the Christian tradition, right? So some of those people might become uh, mainland Christians with a with a very ex-evangelical identity. Um, the emergent church movement, the post-evangelical movement was a lot of this. Um, and then just there, there's a whole online presence now of people who just consider themselves ex-evangelicals and have this sort of Christian practice that is um, in, in very much very much a response to evangelicalism, uh, but not quite as at home in the historical church, in the historical mainline tradition. So do you want to add anything to that? No, I, I think that was spot on. I think it's important to see the, the different origins, I guess. You have yeah. one sort of coming out of evangelicalism and then the other that arises out of basically just mainline Protestantism. At this yeah. point, though, they do overlap quite a bit and often they overlap within mainline churches. So the mainline church has sort of created a space where even emergent evangelicals mm -hmm. can find a home, mm -hmm. I guess. In, yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of ex-evangelicals who end up being uh, clergy in mainline denominations. So. Or end up at mainline seminaries, yeah. or I think that's fairly common. Yeah, so uh, beforehand and kind of in our email exchange and things like that, we were kind of talking about just the word progressive itself. And so let me try and, and dice this out now that I've heard you uh, say that, and then I'll obviously let you guys uh, comment on it. But it sounds like what you want to say is the term progressive perhaps doesn't fit, Um this brand of Christianity, perhaps the word mainline. It sounds like the word mainline is what you want to substitute there. And the reason. Sorry. Yep. Yeah, no, go ahead. It depends what you're talking about. If you're talking about denominational historical American Protestantism, then mainline is the word. Mm -hmm. But you're talking about deconversionist ex-evangelical Christianity. Um, ex-evangelical is a word people use. Emergent is a word people use. I think emergent is a little dated, actually. Like, there was a very specific movement that was associated with it. But um, sort of ex-evangelical, or even progressive evangelical is another thing that exists. Like, I think this can be attested at places like Wheaton College, for instance. Um, so that's, so, so yeah, it's, 
Main lies on us. I mean, we, for the purposes of this, of this interview, we can say progressive because I think we are talking about some overlapping sociological phenomena, but it's just useful for defining. So, okay. Uh, then we'll go ahead and move on to uh, some of the questions about this uh, progressive Christianity. And, and uh, one is how, and this is a very open-ended question, but kind of just uh, broadly speaking, how does progressive Christianity differ from, uh, I guess it's opposite, which would be conservative Christianity? Uh, some of the critiques I hear people use the word orthodox Christianity, and so I'm supposing that that word is probably going to want to be uh fought over like what is actually orthodox um so kind of uh what are your general thoughts on that question and just those terminologies that i was just using sure i think um there are, there are several points of, of clear difference between what we would call conservative and, and progressive christianity the first would be surrounding scripture um both i think consider scripture to be authoritative in some way Conservatives would talk about it generally in terms of an, an errant, it's an inerrant book, right? Um, and it's inspired. It's the word of God. Uh, progressives, I think, tend to emphasize the humanity of the text a bit more strongly. They like to hone in on specific sorts of teachings from the Gospels, the teachings of, of Jesus. Uh, they like to emphasize the prophetic texts quite a lot as well. Um so they both think the the Bible is important, just in, in different ways. And I also want to to preface what I'm saying uh, with I'm I'm not endorsing the progressive sort of side of this necessarily. I don't consider myself to be a, a progressive Christian. So I, I'm just sort of laying out what I see as the the differences between the two. So just to be clear about that um, before we yeah. Keep, so uh, you're saying you would not um, identify yourself as a progressive Christian. No, no. So I would, I would take a different sort of approach to, to scripture um, than what I just outlined. Um, I would honestly just call myself a mainline Protestant. Um, okay. I'm a, uh, in the UCC, and I'm broadly reformed because of that. So I'm yeah. just a Protestant. Um, so just, yeah, just to kind of clarify that. Everyone's going to be so confused. <laughs> yeah, including the host. Who was like, I thought I brought you on to defend, you know, progressive Christianity. Now you're like, eh, I'm not progressive at all. Well, we're within the sphere of what we're calling progressive right. for yeah, tonight. I got you. Okay, so let me ask you, um, <laughs> I, I, th I really think the scripture thing is a big one. I know, yeah. Um, okay, because, uh, I was going to ask this later, but this actually works out fine. Um, because in the critiques I hear, and um, and I am specifically talking about illicit uh Childers's video that I did with her is sure. that, um, and I heard this in seminary. I went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I hear this everywhere. I've always been suspicious of it, I'll be honest. Um, yep. But it's always put like this uh, conservatives or Orthodox Christians, this is literally how it gets put hold the Bible up here, and these progressive or liberal Christians hold the Bible down here. Um, and that's the biggest difference between them. Um, so how do you uh, think about whenever, or how do you respond, or what do you think whenever you hear conservatives um, framing it that way? So I think the obvious question to ask is, what is the fullest revelation of God? Yeah. How do we know who God is? And one thing that I think sets us apart from other religions is that as Christians, we say that the fullest revelation of God is a person. Uh, it's Jesus, right? So if, uh, if progressive Christians have the Bible here, 
it's only because we've got Jesus right here, right? <laughs> so I would say that, you know, for, for a lot of us, the thing that is shaping our theology isn't a it's not a book. And I think this gets you a lot of benefits because books are mediated, right? You know, people have to write them. They have to translate them. They have to, you know, transcribe them throughout history. Um, books can be at odds with each other. Books can have tensions within them. Um, the Bible has a bunch of those. But one thing that is, you know, a, a, gooder, a, a, a good starting point for your theology is... Um, is Jesus because you don't have those problems, right? If you rest your theology on the revel uh, the idea that the fullest revelation of God is in the person of Jesus Christ, then we can actually start to get somewhere. Right. So, okay, what is Jesus like? We know that Jesus is self-sacrificing, right? You know, that's how he died. Uh, we know that Jesus is uh, is uh, Lord over um, is his triumph over sin, right? So there's another thing we have. Uh, we know that all people are united. That all people are now uh, invited to participate in God's new reality, and this gives us some ideas of how to uh, how to treat each other, right? I think there's a lot more to go on instead of trying to make all of these voices into this in, in the bible into this univocal thing um because that's where you can get a lot of leveling you can get a lot of distortions um you can get a lot of heresy <laughs> so yeah. i mean that's what that's what i would say um yeah very true i mean it reminds me kind of, of what paul is talking about with the the letter and the spirit right um <laughs> the letter sort of on its own can unleash all sorts of horrible things and i think that can go for the bible too if it's not under the control of the spirit and we're not reading it under God's guidance, right? Yeah. The book itself um, can do all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so real quick, I do want to, uh, to the audience, if you have any questions that you want to ask uh, uh, Laura or John or myself, prefer preferably Laura or John, uh, just tag help me believe in the live chat. I'll, uh, we're going to have a short time of Q&A at the end. Um, super chats are working, so if you want to do that, and uh, you can do that, and I'll address those first. Um Okay, so what you're saying makes sense. Uh, Jesus is uh, the fullest revelation of God, and uh, that should take uh, uh, primacy over the uh, text of Scripture. I suppose that's what no, you're saying. You, you may want to dice it up differently, but uh, yep. Sorry, do you mind if I hop in really fast? You can hop um, in whenever you want. That's fine. Okay, or, but, I, but I think that actually how John and I would put it is that Jesus shows us how to read Scripture. Oh, okay, yeah. So that, that can mean that sometimes you can read against what the apparent meaning of a text, right? Or you can find um, something that is less apparent about it. And also, there's nothing about this approach to scripture that's new. You know, so I want to be really careful when we say the word progressive. It doesn't mean that John and I came up with this last week. You know, like this is a this is a word that actually I don't think describes the process very well. Um, the idea that you need God's spirit, you need the spirit of Jesus to help you read and interpret scripture correctly, is in all of the church fathers. You know, the idea that you can just sort of, it's this self-interpreting text that we can just um, read doctrine right out of, and, you know, how to live right out of, and that's all there is to it. You know, that's, that's actually, that's the innovation. <laughs> so I think what I would want to say is that, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with the Bible. You just need Jesus to help you read it. Yeah. So. Yeah, and 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 on the semantics of it being progressive, um, mm -hmm. in some ways we're all progressive in the sense oh, yeah. in the I mean the word reformed if at least carries sure. the the connotation progressive. Yeah, yeah. Because if you if by orthodox you mean historical or like as close back to the New Testament as we can get, um, 
then a lot of people should still be reading the Bible like allegorically, which they do. But a, a lot of people agree that that's not a good way to conservative people uh, agree yeah. that that's not a good way to read the text of scripture. Right. You know, you're not David. You're not what, you know, this is just something I hear all the time in churches, but, um, and I agree that you, that's probably not the best way to be reading the scripture, but uh, yeah, just yeah. something on the, the semantics of it. But okay. Um, you said you did not agree with what you were saying earlier about the scriptures. Uh, John, John, what do you think about, and I hope I'm not like, putting you like in an uncomfortable spot or anything but what, what do you i'm just genuinely curious um uh, what do you think about inerrancy and uh inspiration yeah um i'm not big on inerrancy specifically i i, I don't think that's what the text is is doing i don't see it as a sort of um document that has no errors at all what i do see it doing is faithfully witnessing to and attesting to Jesus Christ. I think that's what primarily the, the canon is doing for us as Christians. It's, we talk about this in terms of mediation. Mm -hmm. It mediates God's revelation in Jesus Christ and you, to us. And you get that straight from Jesus. Just to go back to the, the foundation of your theology, which you were saying earlier, you're going to read the scripture the way Jesus does. Jesus himself says that he is the the point of all of scripture is that kind of what you're saying yeah and so insofar as scripture faithfully and truthfully attests to jesus christ i'm fine with talking about that in terms of inspiration i, I just normally don't use that language i like the language of the bible as a, a faithful witness okay um uh, but it is and it is important and like i care about the bible it's 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 important for the life of the church. It's important for how we live our lives ethically. Um, I would never say that it's just this human book or anything right. like that. I also think it's worth saying that, um, you know, in some ways it's almost beside the point whether the Bible is inerrant or not, because as readers, we are not inerrant. And, you know, all books have to be interpreted. All books are, um, we, we are capable of reading our own biases into things. We are capable of reading our own culture into things. We are capable of misreading, mistranslating, misunderstanding. Right. So it, to some extent, I'm not terribly worried about what the text is. I'm worried about how we're approaching it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, you know, I, I think that's an important part of the, part of the equation. For sure. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm probably a heretic, but the way I've always understood inerrancy is is different than a lot of conservatives. Um, yeah. And we we were just talking about uh, Michael Lycona before the show. We weren't talking bad about him, by the way. I should say <laughs> that. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm, to say about him. <laughs> he has a nuanced view of inerrancy that I think would still be uh, classified as conservative or something. But it's it's basically that the Bible is true in all that it affirms, uh, like theologically or something like that. So I've always gone back to what is the authorial intent? What is the author trying to say here? And whatever the author is trying to say is obviously what God was intending to say. And as far as historical details and scientific details that you're going to see in the Old Testament, they aren't bringing these things up um, as points in and of themselves. They're always using them to make some theological point or something like that in the larger context of what they're saying so it's almost like they don't matter it's a lot like when people critique aristotle for his physics and try to dismiss his metaphysics his metaphysics wasn't based i'm getting in i'm making an analogy that a lot of people are gonna be like what the heck are you talking about um <laughs> but the point is just like just because they're wrong about science and it's got some things wrong obviously they were pre-scientific 
Um, but I'm, I'm reading it for the theology. I'm not reading this as a scientific literature. Um, and so that's just kind of how I was always understood that. But I'm also kind of probably looking at it um, with a different point of view than a lot of people are because I'm looking at it specifically like that. I mean, the way I just described it is an apologetics way of looking at it. Like, what about these scientific details? It can't be inerrant. They were clearly wrong about that. And so I'm uh, looking at it from that point of view, whereas uh, other people may be uh, approaching the view of inerrancy or the understanding of inerrancy from not that at all. They may be looking at it from some theological perspective or something. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's never been, and I'm going to get in trouble, but it's never been high on my priority list um, just because it's not foundational. Like God exists and Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, those are the two biggest things. And inerrancy isn't required for those. So right. yeah. I'm not saying it's unimportant. It might be important for other things, but it's not important as far as I'm concerned when I'm thinking about salvation, things mm -hmm. like that. I don't mm -hmm. think you have to believe in inerrancy to be saved, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get dragged for that, but that's okay. Maybe not. Maybe not. I've got a pretty good crowd. I hope not. I think what no. you're saying is exactly right. right. Well, I also think um, you'd be quite at home at somewhere like Wheaton College with that view, to be totally honest. You know, and, and I think what, the one thing that we're all acknowledging here is that there is an interpretive project yeah. to reading the Bible. And, you know, like, mm -hmm. no matter how you cut the cards on what the Bible is, that's still a decision you have to make. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, nobody gets out of that. Like, you meet the most conservative evangelical in the world. And if you aren't making, if you're not aware of your interpretive decisions, you're not thinking through how you do that you're really just reading your, you're reading yourself into it yeah so so and, and i do want to go back to a point that you guys made because i think i agree with it and every christian i think would agree with it which is we should read the bible or understand the nature of the bible the way that jesus did and um i think you'd be hard pressed to make a case that jesus understood it in terms of like a very um uh strict inerrant view like every little detail is uh 100 correct or true like contradicts moses do what he contradicts moses his teaching on divorce you know right, right there and things like that yeah i mean there's all sorts of stuff where i'm just like the bat, yeah. you know but i mean i've heard the arguments and i'm like these are just bad arguments but uh, <laughs> anyway we'll get off that before i really do get dragged um <laughs> yeah so you do uh and you already kind of touched on this but in conservative circles you will hear um, that that progressive Christianity is something that is uh, new to the scene. Um, it's really just uh, I'll just put it to you straight. It's not like you have never heard it before, and the audience hasn't heard it before. It is um, Christians who are trying to make Christianity more palatable, palatable. I don't know how to pronounce that word. I've only ever read it. To um, oh, a con it. contemporary, <laughs> <laughs> it happens to me so much. It's not even funny. Um, <laughs> Me too. I do it all the time. They're trying to make it easier to hold on to for a modern audience, maybe like for evangelistic purposes mm -hmm. or stuff like that. So basically, they're compromising to the culture around them um, and things like that. So, I mean, how do you respond? I mean, that to me is just attributing motive, and it doesn't, even if it were true, it didn't matter. But uh, it's like, yeah, it's definitely psychologizing. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, one thing I do always think with the whole like sellout idea is sell out to what <laughs> like, yeah. what are we getting out of yeah. this you know um I know. I yeah think, yeah technically speaking progressive christianity is quite new but so is evangelical christianity right. it's not like 
Yeah, discuss the, this. I, I'd like to hear that. Yeah. yeah, it's not like the early church was running around believing everything that conservatives believe or everything that, that progressives believe. It's just not true. Um, religions develop over time, and we know this. We can study this sociologically and historically. Um, so I don't think there's anything really shocking or bad about that initially. It's just the case. Um, religions, they develop. To, to your point about progressive Christianity compromising obvious Biblical doctrines, I think, is what you were you were referring to. Again, I think there's a tendency for um, progressives to prioritize certain things without proper theological warrant. I think that happens all the time. Everyone does that. Um, yeah. But yeah, everyone's doing that. <laughs> yeah. um, I think an example, I don't know, from a progressive position would be like, progressives can sometimes take on board certain social causes without... Um, what I would call proper Christological grounding for doing so um, without proper theological warrant. At the same time, conservatives also concede to the culture. And I think a, a good example of this is um, it's, it's um, conception of the family is really, really rooted in 1950s American culture. <laughs> um, I don't think it's actually really coming out of scripture in the way that they, they say it is. No, um, a household in the New Testament is a man, his wife, the slaves he may or may not be having right. sex with, and all of their children. You know, like no one is arguing that we need to recreate this model of, and then you're Freeman and then you're other dependents, yeah, yeah. but no one is arguing that in, anywhere that we need to bring this model of the household back. So when people say family ma values, they're not talking about marriage and childhood and family rearing as it exists in the New Testament. They're thinking about the capitalist post-industrial 1950s family where you have a commercial space that someone can go and work and come back and bring money and someone else takes care of the house. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't exist in the yeah. New Testament. You can't bring it back. You can't champion yeah. it. So, yeah. 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 All that is to say, like, Christians do this in various ways all the time, whether or not they're progressive or conservative, right? So this is kind of like a, a Romans 2 move, right? <laughs> you're doing the very same thing yeah. <laughs> that you're claiming um, others you disagree with are doing, right? So it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, I, I think of things kind of more in like the form of the objection that they take is, is actually a, a, a valid form. And so whenever somebody says that you're just doing this because it's, uh, you know, I already forgot how to pronounce the word more palatable um, and things like that. It's just like, even if that were true, it's just like when a skeptic will say to me, you believe this because your parents taught you it and stuff like that. Even if that were true, it wouldn't make the belief false. You would still have to right. show you. Um, it's not true, uh, but even if it was, it still wouldn't make the belief false. You still have to show why the belief is false. And it's not false because it's new. Mm -hmm. uh, even if so, I'm saying even if it was new, that doesn't make it false. Um, for a lot of people, annihilationism or conditionalism looks new, uh, which is a view that I hold to. And mm -hmm. so, what's called traditionalism would be eternal conscious torment. That is the old view; has been around since I guess Augustine, if not earlier, to the people that want to debate that. But it, a long time; it's been around for a long time. I think it's false, and I think it's going to go away. Uh, don't currently hold to. Well, we can go ahead and make this uh, segue. Uh, we can make the segue into the conversation because that actually is the next question. So that that worked out. And I didn't even mean for it too. Nice. <laughs> so no. well done. <laughs> I finally did something right. Um, the segue, <laughs> well, I haven't even revealed it to the audience. This set who doesn't have it, who obviously does not have the questions in front of them. 
the, the so the next question is about that the eternal state or the state of people who are not Christians the the fate I'm, I've been meaning to say fate not the state the fate of people who are not Christians or non-believers the wicked however you want to put uh, phrase that um, you both affirm universalism is that correct universal reconciliation universal reconciliation yep that's a, that's another thing there are functions among the broader category of universalism uh, which I do yeah. already know but uh, I do want you to explain that. But let's go ahead and say that. What is universalism more broadly and kind of what are the different categories underneath that umbrella? <laughs> uh, so so three, three, three questions here. What is universalism more broadly? What are the different yeah. distinctions underneath it? And which one do you affirm? Sure. Um, this could take a bit to answer. Hey, we, I got all night. My wife's at work. She works a night shift. So. Be concise. Um, universalism really just refers to all things being saved so all things being restored and reconciled back to god um so that god will be all in all it's kind of a basic answer um but how does this work is the next question and so this is where you get different kinds of universalism um one of them would be this sort of like multiple ways up the mountain to god right so each religion is this sort of its own pathway to the same god and um you can kind of choose whichever one you want, but you'll end up at the same destination, right? Um, that's one way of talking about universalism. Another way, and this would be the way that I would talk about it, is I would call this something like Christological universalism. And what I mean by that is Jesus Christ reveals a God who is fundamentally and irrevocably committed to creation in love. This is kind of Ephesians 1, right? Mm -hmm. um, that love chooses to be with humanity. And we could talk about this in terms of election, right? God chooses to be with and for humanity in Jesus Christ from before the foundation of the world. And Jesus embodies who this God is, what he's like, what the purposes of creation are, and the ultimate sort of plan for the world, okay? So in this revelation, we learn that God draws us back to himself through the spirit, to the father, to live with him forever in perfection and fellowship. So the purposes of creation are fundamentally positive. Creation is a good thing. It's a loving thing. It's not negative. There's nothing negative about it at all. Um, so the question for us is, is this plan going to be thwarted by something? Or is God going to remain unconditionally committed to humanity is something going to come along and kind of knock this off the track, whether it's sin or death or whatever, um, or is God actually going to triumph over this? And I think where Christological universalism is coming from is we will emphasize Jesus's lordship at this moment that Jesus will and does indeed triumph over anything that gets in the way of that plan. There's nothing that separates people from the love of God in Jesus. Um, and we can be confident in that. We can be assured that God's not going to let go of us at all, um, that this plan is actually going to come to fruition. Um, so the the argument for Christological universal, universalism is that Jesus reveals this sort of God, and this sort of God remains faithful to us. Okay. Right? Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, 
some follow-up questions to it. So I think, uh, first I'll check with you. I think you're affirming that, uh, eventually everyone is going to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Sure. And I don't know how that's going to happen. Jesus, exactly. yeah, yeah. Jesus's work will be sufficient to yeah. save all creation. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, uh, and let's see if in terms of the particulars of people recognizing that, I don't really know what okay. that. Yes, well, that's unfortunate because that's all the questions that I have, which is like, uh, okay, so if somebody dies, I'm not there. <laughs> yeah, that that's perfectly fine. That, that I love honesty. It's so. after our timeline, yeah. so uh, but yes, assured that it assured that it happens. I also think one thing I will say about the knowledge thing, really quickly though, is that I don't want to frame this as though our knowledge or affirmation or confessions are what save us. You know, I think there's something we can all agree about that yeah. Jesus is. Grace is the thing that saves us. God's grace is the thing that saves us. And there's nothing we can add to that process. So even if somebody dies and they've never made that confession, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Jesus is the one who saves them, not their own faith. So, you know, exactly what this looks like in the age to come, in the eschaton, you know, whatever the word we're going to use for it is. I'm not too worried about that because I don't think anybody has to clear some kind of bar in order to get there because God is the one doing the saving, not us. Mm -hmm. gotcha. mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But I, I do have at least one other follow-up question that doesn't, sure. yeah. doesn't have to do with our, our knowledge. Um, which is evangelism. Um, I'll just, this isn't really my objection. I'm just trying to think of questions well, that, that people will have. Um, I don't know. I actually probably, I can probably stop prefacing that with all my interviews. I think, <laughs> I think people get the idea that I'm not object. Um, if everyone is ultimately going to um, be reconciled to God, uh, one way or another, it's going to happen. It doesn't have really anything to do with us because like you said, Jesus is the one that is going to be victorious. He's the one that is going to accomplish this. Uh, why go tell people about Jesus? <laughs> I'll give you my answer. Yeah. Before we uh -huh. answer that question, can I actually mention one thing about universalism before we move on? Absolutely. Uh, I think there is a huge benefit in taking this account of universal, universalism seriously. Because I think what it does is it creates a clear and unbreakable continuity between creation and redemption. Jesus as the Lord is the creator of all things and also the redeemer of all things. So you you never at any point risk sort of stepping over into Marcionism, right? There isn't a different God that's the creator. There isn't a different sort of sphere of activity that one God is doing. And then Jesus shows up and acts in a different sort of way, in a different sphere of reality, right? So I think that's a huge, a huge benefit of that um of that account of salvation that uh i think other accounts struggle with to be honest yeah. but just wanted to say that yeah, before so why evangelize why evangelize I, i'll give my answer because being a christian is awesome <laughs> <laughs> i love being a christian it's terrific you know and i think that's that's my obvious you know that that's my answer uh because it's really cool because being a christian is wonderful and I, I i would want other people to have that but i i'm gonna i'm sure that you're gonna want to qualify the word evangelize um in one oh, way really? oh because i was thinking yeah. about like you know because evangelism i think can include a lot of behaviors that like john and i might not necessarily engage in you know like persuasion or apologetics right you know that's not really something we're terribly interested in but it does include proclamation right you know like confessing that jesus is lord and doing this in all kinds of spheres right and that's um 
of course it's it's god who draws people it's Mm -hmm. not us and there's not a lot of work we can necessarily do to make that happen faster except to just proclaim proclaim the gospel (laughs) uh which i like to think is what we're doing tonight (laughs) but uh, We're yeah, we're we're enacting evangelism on you. We are yeah, we're evangelizing um, you so hard right now. <laughs> so far, yeah. Um, yeah, I, th- I think universalism actually has a really really positive effect on evangelism because what it, what it allows you to do, and what I would say, it, what it frees you to do, is to actually get to know people as people mm-hmm. instead of trying to save them from some kind of future threat yeah. <laughs> of damnation, which tends to be what motivates a lot of evangelizing. Um, in a lot of churches, right? Yeah. It liberates you to be able to actually engage with people in real, genuine friendships, to get to know them, to come alongside them, and to love them, and to, to learn to about them, and to listen to them. Yeah. And, like, it really sets you up in sort of a, a humble, kind of incarnational posture toward other people. You can really get alongside people and get to know them. And in those sorts of contexts of trust and friendship, Sharing the good news about Jesus is entirely appropriate and good um, because we believe in a good God who loves everybody. Why? Why wouldn't you share that with somebody? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like um, just what I'm what I'm hearing is like uh, just because you take away the the stick, so to speak, there's <laughs> there's still the carrot that's motivating. So, so many carrots. Yeah. So many carrots. <laughs> There's so many carrots. There are so many carrots. Yeah. You're welcome. From Hayden Joshua Clark. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So we already talked a little bit about inspiration and inerrancy. Um, it, th- so this is something that, uh, Laura, you brought up, I believe, when you first contacted me about this subject. And so I really don't actually know where you want to go with this, but I put it in the form of a question. Uh, what is your understanding of atonement? Uh, in that Christ died for us, and uh, so you were mentioning some different views and uh, how this gets brought up in the conservative progressive conversation, and so I'll kind of just let you take it from there if you'd like. I'm going to start this one, and then... Um, Go for it. Just because, so I, um, the thing that prompted me to respond to this is like looking at some blogs from people who are critical of progressive Christianity, and we're specifically criticizing them on the grounds that they had moved away from the historic position of the church, which was that all sin needs to be punished, we have all sinned, and G- God has, instead of punishing us, punished Jesus in our place, and because of that, we will not be punished and we will go be in heaven. This is not the historical position of the church at all. This is actually probably, you know, 200 years old. You know, the idea of Jesus being punished in our place, like the punishment language and this sort of, um, this very um, punitive, uh, retributive view of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Uh, This is not the historic position of the church. There are so many images and so many metaphors that actually are in the New Testament that are in the... um, and the church fathers that have nothing to do with punishment. And I think to get the Bible to talk about punishing, uh, the, the idea that the most important part of the atonement is that Jesus was punished in our place, I think because it's not, it's never said in the New Testament. You know, a lot of times people want to pull out things like he became sin who knew no sin, which again has nothing to do with punishment. Um, but I think the thing that you primarily have to do is to read those passages 
through a weirdly punitive account of what the sacrificial system in the Old Testament does, right? So in the Old Testament, you know, you sin, you need to have your sin atoned for, covered up. You take in an ox, you kill the ox in your place, God will not kill you, now he will kill the ox and everything's good, right? That's not what sacrifice is. That's not how sacrifice works in the ancient world. Um, it's very obvious when you expand the lens to note that most of the sacrifices in the Old Testament involve things like wine and barley and uh, other vegetable material, incense, uh, in addition to meat, and you can't punish barley you can't punish wine there's something besides punishment and killing happening there and also even killing killing the animals not the central part of the ritual the central part of the ritual is what you do with the blood to do this um to create this sacred space that is uh that is purified for god to operate in there so the old testament idea of what sacrifice is really has nothing to do with punishment it's about using these ritual detergents of the agricultural system to create a safe a a, a uh a clean space where god God can live among his people. So if you're going to talk about the sacrifice system as a lens for understanding Jesus, that's more the angle you have to go. And again, not all of the images for Jesus' death in the New Testament are sacrificial. Um, Hebrews famously is all about the sacrifice images, but it's not the only one. So um, do you want to talk more yeah, about that? It's about, or do you... it's about cleansing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah right. Do you have any follow-up questions before John says what we think what the atonement is or... Yes. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you can go into it and just kind of answer this question as you go. But uh, the question I have is, uh, then how do you understand? Um, I'm thinking of a few off the top of my head, but just the the verses uh, or the places in the New Testament where you'll read that Christ died for us. So, punishment perhaps, per, per, punishment perhaps not, but death for us. Or, yeah, yeah. There's definitely a, a sort of substitutionary dimension involved in the atonement um it's, it no sounds question. like uh it sounds like sorry i'm changing the screens back and forth here oh, but before you go so it sounds like you're denying penal uh substitutionary atonement but obviously still affirming substitutionary atonement yeah, yeah. Atonement it's definitely a part way. of it mm -hmm. yeah. we it's didn't die yeah, yeah yeah right uh well we did but we did oh, that's, okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so i i think I feel like Christ a third died. wheel. Sorry. What's that? I said, I feel like a third wheel. <laughs> We're so Honey, cute. honey. She's not here. She's at work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but go ahead and explain your view of the atonement. And, uh, sure. I yeah, think yeah. Christ dying for, for us is part of it. Um, I, I want to actually paraphrase Athanasius of Alexandria um, and say that the atonement is really referring to God needing to become like us so that we might become like Christ. So the, the problem for us in terms of what the atonement is addressing is not that we've stepped out of line and need to be punished. The problem is actually horrifying and, and deep and radical. It's that we've been constructed of flesh that has been invaded by evil and it lives in us. <laughs> um, we're enslaved to it. We're incarcerated to it, right? Um, that's the the huge problem that the atonement is addressing. Um, so what do we need if we've been incarcerated thing by a power that that's harming us, right? We don't need to be punished. <laughs> you don't hit somebody and hurt somebody who's already being harmed by something else, right? Wow. You need to be set free from that, and you need to be recreated and reconstituted. So what Christ does in his death is he 
incarnates, assumes what we are, assumes that evil constitution, and dies. So that's terminated. All of that bad stuff has been terminated, it's dead, and it's buried, right? And by participating in him, by way of the spirit, that evil constitution is done away with. And then we're resurrected into a new life beyond that, right? Mm. Um, so it's addressing a, a really radical problem with our corrupt and finite reality. Um, the, the, the penal or punitive approach is actually too soft on sin, right? It's not actually getting into the reality of it and taking it on and executing it, right? Gotcha. So that's where I would go with the atonement. So, so it, it's important that the incarnation, the, the death of Christ, the resurrection, the ascension, even the glorification of Christ are all a part of the atonement. It's not just the death. It doesn't really do you much good if you've just died, right? Yeah. <laughs> Need uh, to be nice. resurrected. Yeah, right. Uh, Laura, anything to add? I think he, cr- I think he crushed it. <laughs> so. he crushed it. He's killing it. He's killing it just as good as he was in that thumbnail picture that I pulled off of his face. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> you, you, I looked like... I look like a, a badass in that photo, and I'm, I really feel like I'm just going to disappoint people <laughs> because I'm not going to live up to that uh, picture. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, everyone. Uh, so, so, like, with Laura, I'm, I'm able to go to, like, uh, Duke University or somewhere and get, like, this uh, professional headshot, <laughs> and I'm like, I, yeah. I wonder if John's got anything like that. And so I saw your and picture I'm at the church. Somewhere. <laughs> probably smoking a cigarette or something. <laughs> so it is one of the creepiest things that I have to do whenever I'm creating these things. I guess I don't have to, but they just look better when you got a picture of it. No, they definitely do. But, uh, and I'm like, I'm creeping on this guy's Facebook for a picture of him that I like. It's just like, okay, <laughs> whatever. Okay, so these... That's amazing. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm doing. That's <clears throat> what this has come to. But... Uh, <laughs> The next few questions I think are, um, I was just thinking about this, are why I think some conservatives like to attribute motive in the, uh, that progressives Mm -hmm. are compromising to the culture around them because they either coincidentally or something do line up a lot with what the political left in, or, uh, that's a good way to put it. The political left in the United States agree with. Um, and so it's a, it's a, I don't know if it's incidental or not. I'm not attributing motive, but I can see why some people, I don't think you should ever attribute motive, but I do think I do understand kind of where it comes from. Cause the next two subjects that in the conservative critique of progressive Christianity always get brought up just so happen to align with what a, somebody on the conservative right on the political sphere would also be debating somebody on the political left of the, anyway, I think I've said enough about that. Everybody gets it, but I just mm-hmm. ramble on and try to preface myself like 15 times before I actually say what I'm going to say. Cause I'm annoying. Um, and that is, uh, how does one affirm, uh, women, uh, female preachers in the church in light of some of these verses like first Timothy two twelve and that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, rather than going to these proof texts and doing exegesis and things on that, that like that, I figured there was probably some more broad, theological or philosophical point that you would want to make. But uh, anyway, you can take that in any direction you'd like. Yeah. First thing I would say about letters in the new Testament is that they are always contingent, right? You know, these letters are written by people to churches and they are not necessarily. So when we, when we look at any advice in these, we have to think about the situation into which they were written. Right. So 
it's important not to treat epistles in the New Testament as though the early Christians wrote them down to be timeless instructions for how to run the church for 2,000 years. They write into very specific situations. And I think we see this very obviously when we notice that 1 Timothy 2 is actually quite contradicted by some of the data that we have in 1 Corinthians that actually assumes that women will be and women will be prophesying. Um, and there's a lot of fuss about how to do that properly with your head done, with your head covered or uncovered. I also think the very... Um, the occasional nature of First Timothy 2 is very obvious when you notice that the, the you know, everybody always reads the I Desire a Woman to, uh, to Learn Silently, but people tend to miss the fact that the rest of that paragraph doesn't make a lick of sense, <laughs> that there is a lot of talk about uh, salvation through childbirth, which I don't think any Christians affirm. Uh, you know, there's a lot of really unclear, unclear pronouns, a lot of unclear... Um, uh, pr like pronouns of the antecedents. And I think one thing that is helpful to remember is that if somebody is talking and you're tracking, you're tracking, you're tracking, and then suddenly they say something that doesn't make any sense, you weren't tracking. <laughs> so something right. has happened. And I think it's important to note that it's a very, it should be a clue to us to read that passage as though it is writing into a very specific situation. Mm -hmm. um, uh, real but, quick, I want to, I want to plug Nick, Quint, who's a New Testament student. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know Nick? Yeah, I know Nick. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's he's more popular than I think, I guess. Uh, <laughs> no, he's he's awesome. Uh, I've had him on the show to discuss this very topic before, and he did an exegesis of First Timothy two twelve. Okay. That I, and I was just like, well, that I don't. That's not literally what I did. I don't know why I just did that. But um, anyway, it was very good it, because, like you're saying, I'm reading these verses, and the first part of that text it does just like on the surface of it, like, okay, women shouldn't talk in the church or whatever. And then you get on, and it's like, and they're saved by having, getting birth. Well, I don't, that doesn't fit. It's exactly the way you just described it. And then whenever he did his exegesis of it on this channel, which people can go back and find, by the way, um, I was like, okay, it makes a lot of sense now. Um, but uh, anyway, I wanted to plug that for people that were, because yeah, no, I didn't know if you was about to go into some exegesis or not. So I kind of wanted to plug it. Back. Right. Yeah. No, there's a, I mean, there's a few different ways to do the exegesis of that passage, but I just think it's important to note that it's clearly occasional. And also, when we look at the other Pauline letters, we have people like Junius, who is a, uh, who is an, a female apostle who works with her husband, uh, probably her husband, Andronicus, but you know, she, Junia is a, you know, female apostle. Uh, we have Phoebe, who would have delivered the letter to the Corinthians, and uh, wait, did she deliver Romans or Corinthians? <laughs> Phoebe, it would have been Romans. It would have been Romans. Yeah. Okay, so Phoebe uh, delivers Romans, which, you know, when you're a letter deliverer in the early church, it doesn't mean you hand off the mail. It normally means that you give a recitation of it, yeah, you explain parts that aren't clear. So she would have absolutely been teaching the church in order to deliver this letter, right? So when we look at the New Testament, it's very clear that women are in teaching roles. So it's important to note that it's very unlikely that First Timothy 2 is just overwriting all of that right you know that just, it just doesn't make any sense um but more broadly i think it's fair to really ask the question and this leads us all really nicely into the next question is how much does gender really matter in the church and i can let john take that one um do you want to talk about gender and new humanity well, yeah, yeah i mean if we're thinking a little bit more theologically and less in terms of sort of uh the, con the contingency of certain letters and and executing those Specifically, um, I I think there's something about participating in 
this new reality in Christ um, that's beyond old sorts of like binaries, right? Like you have Paul saying that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. He's quoting Genesis. Right. There's a sense in which being in Christ, we are in some way transcending those things. And I think what that can allow us to do is sort of loosen the grip that those have previously had on our lives. I think we have Christological warrant for doing that. How you actually go about doing that practically and, and thinking through that theologically is a, is another important question. But I think we really have to, to see our lives as Christians beyond the old age, <laughs> right? We're, we're, we're situated in, in a new resurrected reality that's here now and it's pressing yeah. in on us. So. I mean, the, Galatians 3 suggests that when people were baptized into the church, you know, that Paul, that the, the, uh, the creed that was said over them is that there is neither male, there is no male and female, which is a direct contradiction of Genesis 2, that there is no, that male and female don't exist anymore. So why would it make any sense that you've been baptized into the, the eschatological age where gender is not normative? Why would it make sense for the church to still be governed along those lines, right? And that's exactly what we see in the church, that there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of tension of how to navigate these things exactly and how to make sure you're not overly offending people. You know, I think the head coverings thing has a lot to do with that, that, you know, they're still trying to make the church uh, attractive for outsiders. But slaves do become deacons. Women palatable. do become... They're trying to make it palatable. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, actually, it's a fair thing to say about Paul. That's something I, I always that's something I always respond with anyway. I'm like, yeah, but that's what they were doing. Yeah, yeah I definitely I mean, that's part of what Paul's it's doing. Just yeah. Good missionary work, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Everybody does it to some degree. Yeah. yeah. And it, it really is just good missionary. And I, I mean, we can actually learn a lot from something like the head coverings thing. And even maybe I hate to say this, maybe even at it's in some cases, women preaching too. Yeah, yeah. Let's say you're going into a a context in a situation where culturally um, it's dangerous for women to be in roles over men. Right. Right. Yeah. Then it might be a good idea. It might actually be a good idea right. to right. to yeah. not have a woman in that situation for your safety. Sure. Um, but again, that's that's being attentive to missional dynamics as you're coming alongside people. So it's not to say that 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 should never be the case, yeah. right? Yeah. It's just that it could be yeah. useful in certain situations. Right. right? But the, the gospel that Paul lays out in his letters is very clear that things like gender and race and class are not things that Christians need to be fussing about. And I think that's just the starting place for all of this is how much does this stuff really matter? And if the answer is it doesn't, we are participating in this new reality where these things don't exist, then why would we make a really big deal trying to reinscribe them in the church? Uh, so you you kind of mentioned that there was kind of a natural segue to the next question, um, which uh, does have to do with uh, gender and sexuality, which is the question of uh, about uh, homosexuality or same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. um, is it biblical? It's another one of those things um, where when you look on the surface of the text, it's, it's like, okay, it seems pretty clear that um, places like Romans and other places in the Old Testament, it's like, okay, it seems like this is pretty clear, that this is simple, this isn't correct. Um, how do you respond to that? What is your approach to this topic 
this question. I know it's a very sensitive one. I'm trying to be as sensitive as possible. Uh, I am sensitive to it. Um, I have a family member um, that is uh, in a same-sex relationship, and she actually approached me whenever she, I was the first person she came out to, and she was. Oh, okay. And uh, she knows that I'm the conservative Christian family member that uh, is uh, speaks about his religion and things like that, and so put put the question to me directly. Yeah. Um, and uh, my response was, if you want to follow Jesus, just follow Jesus, which is obviously a non-response. But uh, anyway. actually, not bad response at all. Like, I mean, I don't think following Jesus is ever bad advice. I mean, I think I think there's a few. Like, no, I think there's a few things I would say. One is, you know, I'm not really covering any new ground here. But the obvious starting place is that what we call gay marriage, what we call being gay, is not a thing that they had a concept of in the ancient world. Like the ancient world has no concept of orientation. Um, they tend to think about, you know. Uh, they, they, they tend to think about um, homosexual relationships more in terms of like active and passive, not that like they, they don't have a strict concept of some people just like being gay, right? That's not really something that exists for them. The other thing that doesn't really exist in the ancient world is people entering into lifelong covenantal relationships with someone of the same gender, right? That's just not something that happens in the ancient world. So when we talk about things like gay marriage, you know, that that's just not even something that Paul would know about to write about one way or another. You know, like we're already importing a lot of modern assumptions about what marriage is onto the ancient world that just doesn't exist. But um, I can let you take it from there. Well, real quick, Laura, if you don't mind, sorry, not to, For sure. not to keep John from coming in, but you just said some things that really were like, ah, uh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Because I don't know a lot of things about the ancient world that you're going to, you're the PhD yeah. student. Um, I assume when you're talking about the ancient world, you are talking about like the, the New Testament time, yeah, the first right. century. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're saying there was no concept of uh, these people are gay, these people are straight. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, you do have the idea of people having same gender, like soulmates in Aristotle, but for the most part, sexual orientation isn't really a concept that comes along until like the 19th century, even. Um, it's actually fairly common for people to engage in sex with people of both genders. Um, there's a lot of spaces for men in the ancient world there where it's actually kind of expected that men will have sex with other men you know so the the greek student teacher relationship is a really good example of this um that uh male teachers might have sex with their male students um sl uh, slavery is a really good mm -hmm. example of this it's extremely common for men to um have sex with their male slave so i really the word is rape, right? You know, I'm using the word sex because that's, I think that's the way that they would have thought about it. The word is rape. There's a, obviously an extreme power differential that is making this non-consensual. Um, but it's definitely something that would have happened a lot in the ancient world. And also those people would have no problem then having sex with their wives in order to create heirs, right? So the act of, um, like, these are things that would have coexisted in the same person's life. You know, nobody went through a phase where they realized that they only liked this gender or only that gender. It, it, it kind of just wouldn't have been a big part of a person's identity, right? Um, is that about right, you think? Yeah, so, um, think so, you know, yeah. And a, a lot of it is also related to... Actually, I don't really know if I want to get into that. But, that, but that's just... Whenever we're talking about 
uh, homosexuality in the ancient world. That's the context we have to put it in. Um, that this is not, th- this really has nothing to do with what we think of as being gay or straight now. Uh, John, for uh, sorry, not to, you can address whatever you were already thinking about, but I do also have a question kind of for you from more of a biblical theological perspective. Yeah. Uh, not that Laura can't give one of those. I'm just, she was just speaking. So now I'm going to address John. Um, uh, and either of you can jump in at any time you'd like. But one of the questions that came to mind was, um, you know, what is sin? Uh, is it, yeah, what is sin? And uh, are there sexual acts that God does clearly say are sinful that are binding universally and things? Um, do you see how I'm kind of thinking here? Like, because I'm thinking <laughs> if the Bible did say that homosexuality was sinful, does that you know what does sinful mean and does it mean it's still sinful today and things like that that's kind of how i'm thinking so if you have anything to say about that that'd be awesome because i'm just kind of i'm just kind of confused about it but um yeah anyway go ahead and you can say whatever you already plan to say as well sorry yeah i I, let me go back first i'll address what you just asked kind of after i go back because i i think it'll connect pretty well um so i think the tricky text in the new testament on same-sex relationships or however we want to talk about it is Romans 1, 18 to 32. I think that's really the, the one that's um, uh, important to to address. And I, I think it's the hardest one for quote-unquote progressive Christians to, to deal with mm-hmm. in an, a way that's actually exegetically rigorous um, because it just says that... <laughs> that desire to have sex with somebody of the same sex is wrong and it results from idolatry in that text right so it, paul sets up the that account of idolatry that results in all sorts of bad things right paul <laughs> what i also want to say is i think romans 118 to 32 and also romans 1 to 3 more broadly is actually doing something quite different theologically and rhetorically than I think most people actually uh, grasp. And this this short kind of summary of that is I don't think Paul is endorsing the theology of Romans 118 to 32. I think he's setting up a Socratic argument that he'll then go on to sort of deconstruct yeah. and respond more to than in, in Romans 2. In so there, fact, there's a yeah. voice that shows up there, Paul responds to it in 2. This is all very complicated. Uh, there's a great book on this by my mentor and good friend Douglas Campbell called The Deliverance of God, um, an apocalyptic rereading of justification in Paul, mm-hmm. where he outlines that rereading. Okay, So assuming that uh, the voice that's talking in Romans 1, 18 to 32 is not Paul endorsing that theology, that question is off, actually off the table about whether right, or not whether or not the, the same sex desire there is really relevant at all. Yeah. Um, so I I'm convinced by that position. Um, I will make a shameless plug now that I'm writing a book with him um, that summarizes this reading um, for lay people. So this will be out through Cascade Books, hopefully. Next spring? I don't know. Next fall? I, hopefully next spring. Coronavirus soon-ish. messed everything uh, up. But... Yeah. Well, we'll so, have to have you back on then. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah. We'll have to do it again when the book comes out. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I, I've done a lot of thinking on that stuff. I've learned a lot about Romans 1. I think of that 
contains the the clincher for a lot of people who are uh, uh, who don't affirm uh, same sex relationships. But I also just think it's it's not what they it's not doing what they think it's doing in the text. Gotcha. It's yeah. also worth saying that this argument did not arrive from the fact to exonerate Paul from no, homophobia. No, 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 no. This argument no. arose from the fact that Romans one to three is famously really incoherent. Yeah. It has a lot of things in it that are con- yeah. conflicting with each other. So this has been you know this is the answer that yeah, our and then, has yeah, down. Sp- yeah, especially in relation to five to eight as well. So yeah. there's a lot of weird stuff going on there that I think he solves quite right. convincingly. But- but even um, just more broadly, you know, we were talking in the first one about the idea that in you know in Christ there is neither male nor female, and you know it does in light of that doesn't make sense to try to reinscribe gender roles. You know, I think that if you if we really do believe that in Christ there's no male or female, why would that be any different when we're talking about marriage? Why would it be any different when we're talking about covenants? So, and, and you asked, you know, are there any, um, yeah. are there any sex acts <laughs> that are off that. the table? What? I needed to come back to that. Yeah, are there any sex Sorry, acts that are off the table? Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get graphic, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got a list that I'll pull up. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, but I, I think that um, I think one thing we can affirm in the Bible is the importance of covenant relationships, right? That this is something that the Bible yeah. is very consistent about. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think sometimes Christians can, you know, Christians who follow a more progressive model can kind of fall into the trap of everything that is consensual is fine. And I think, you know, not everything that is not everything that is consensual is good for you. Um, and I think a lot of times, you know, relationships that uh, occur outside of a, a trusting covenantal uh, egalitarian partnership actually can be very destructive and can be very um, harmful. And I think are yeah, count- contraindicated. Yeah, right, right, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, one example would be, I don't think you're, ha- you're supposed to have sex with your mother-in-law. <laughs> That's an explicit one. That's probably a good rule. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. definitely a good rule. Be clear about that. That's in First Corinthians five. Um, he definitely thinks you shouldn't do that. So. Yeah, he'll hand you over to Satan if you do that. Yeah. That's he right. will. He will. That's yeah, right. yeah. But once once you stop, you can come back. Then it's yeah. uh, that one comes up later. Um. So yeah, no. But I mean, but I think all, that that specific example does go to show that there are kinds of you know relationships that do break the community that are um. I know that that are harmful for such that kind of a reason or another. You know, I think the obvious example for why the mother-in-law situation is so upsetting is because it is jarring for a community to have sure. this taking place in it, right? You know, um, like, boy, I don't know if I'd want to go to church with. That. <laughs> you know, so I, I, I think, and yeah, yeah. so I, I think that's you know, as long as you have these, you know. Th- things that can coexist within a community and covenants. That's yeah. what I was central. Yeah. Okay, so I am going to take upon myself the daunting test of going and skimming through the comment section. Uh, and just because there's a lot, I don't mean that. That kind of actually sounded like I was being rude to the commenters. There's a bunch of comments, is what I meant. Because I just. Yeah, I just looked and said there was a. There was a, there's actually a bunch. So. Which is awesome. So I'm going to go skim through those and see which ones I want to present to you guys. Um, While I'm doing that, I have a question for you, which is, um, of course, I'm going to end it this way. But how can progressive Christians and progressive and scare quotes and conservative Christians come together for a common cause? uh, Should they? Those sort of questions. 
Do you want me to? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, I think we actually are together in Christ right now, um, in a certain sense. <laughs> so that yeah. our unity is Christ, right? Even if we're not sort of um, reflecting that unity in the way that we we speak with each other and the way that we interact with each other. But I think we need to remember that we are all already, regardless of whether we're conservative or or mainliners or whatever, we're in Christ together, and that's real, and that's what matters. That said, I I think it would be great for uh, conservatives and non-conservatives to come together in some way, but I'm actually, like practically, sort of come together and work together. I'm just a little bit doubtful <laughs> at the moment, and I don't want to be too cynical about it, but there's just a lot of division and... Um, yeah, I, I don't see it really happening in the near future in any way. Um, but I, I will say, I think the only way for some sort of long-term, uh, coming together of conservatives and non-conservatives is, um, if we take really seriously our theological starting point, um, which is also the starting point for our Christian lives together, um, we need to be sure that when we're talking about God, that we're actually confessing the same sort of God. So we need to have those basic conversations about what God is really like. And when we do that, I think that's the only way that opens up space for us to actually come together. And I'm, I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I have a hard time really believing that that's going to happen anytime soon. So. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I'm going to try to, Take Can you be this, more optimistic? Yeah, I mean, okay. well, actually, one thing I will say is that, you know, when I was kind of doing some reading before this about, you know, sort of criticisms of progressive Christianity, it seemed like a lot of times what came up is, you know, things like signs that your church is becoming progressive is that they care about things like poverty and uh, creation care and uh, other things that I think are fairly obvious things Christians should care about, you know, like racism, you know, obviously that's been in the news tremendously. Um, and I think that if there's one thing we can all agree on, it's that of course we should care about that. And I, I understand, I think one thing I would want, really want to tell conservative Christians is that, you know, like we, the reason to care about these things is not because this is this laundry list of things we have to accomplish in our own strength. We care about them because God cares about them. And I think if we have this more expansive view of um, of the gospel is not being just related to the forgiveness of our sins, but this is, as, um, you know, God, God inaugurating a new uh, reality, a new just world, then of course we should all care about this. So I think that, of course, we can unite behind these kinds of causes and work together for the kinds of things that God cares about. Um, and I, and I, I worry sometimes that those things get pushed off the table in more evangelical spaces because when people think about racism or poverty, they often think about Democrats. And I think that is incredibly tragic that those things might get lost, mm. you know? So I, I, I think that's what I would really encourage, you know, a thing we can unite around is caring about the things that God cares about. Okay. Uh, and it's not, it's not just, it's not just the four, it's not the four spiritual laws. It's a lot bigger than that. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. And that is a lot more hopeful than what I was talking about. <laughs> I, I still really do think that um, before that can even happen, we need to be 
on the same yeah. page in terms of the sort of God we're confessing. Who is God? Who, yeah. The sort of God that we want to care about the things that he cares about. Yeah. Right. I gotcha. So, yeah. so I, I think the more basic question is where I, I, yeah. I want to see discussions and we're, I mean, we're having it kind of right now. Yeah, that's too. what I was going to say is, um, so this, this is kind this of silly like, question in the sense that yeah. I'm obviously, I don't know if it's obvious or not going to yeah. be further on the conservative end of the sure. side of things like, sure. like center, right? Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. uh and I think this is a great way to do it. But um I'm I'm mm, that's gonna sound like I was tooting my own horn. Uh I'm able to just listen to people because I'm not interested at all. Like I'm I, I might be a sociopath, I'm not sure, because I'm just <laughs> not interested in emotional argumentation and things like that. I just wanna hear it. I just you know, if I could just get some people to be quiet so I can hear what they're talking about. Um, and so I got to get you in a space like this where I can just sit and listen. Sure. And um, I think if people would just let go of, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about attributing motive, you know, progressives, they just want to make, make things palatable. It's the word of the day for anybody in the comment section. The word of the day is palatable. They just want to make things palatable. They just, whatever they do, they do what they want. It's like telling, it's like saying atheists become atheists because they want to go sin, you know. Or something like that. It's like, you know, if we could just, right. if we just could drop this crap for five seconds and listen to each other, I bet we'd get somewhere. And um, I think we should do that everywhere. Like that just works yeah, everywhere. What people are telling you, yeah. honestly, you know, yeah, just assume people are being honest and being direct with you. I think that's a yeah. good place to tell you have contrary evidence. Yeah, so, I think that's super important. Yeah, yeah. assume that the <laughs> reasons that they give you for why they believe what they believe is actually the reasons that they believe it. Yeah, that's definitely a good one. Yeah. You know, one of the things that was like a paradigm shift for me was when I decided to stop, not stop listening. Their points are, you know, you should listen to them too. But, um, you know, for the longest time I would take, you know, uh, people's word for it. Like they would say, these people believe X, Y, Z. I'm not one of those people, but they believe X, Y, Z. Here's why they believe it and stuff like that. Um, for the longest time, I did that with atheists, and then I went and read some literature, atheist literature, and went, oh, crap, I think I'm an atheist now. Because I never <laughs> uh, had read anything like that in my life from, from the point of view of someone who actually believes it. Yeah. And so yeah. that was – I'm obviously still a Christian, but I'm just saying, like, that was paradigm shifting for me when I got out of that mindset and just said, you know, maybe we should just start listening to people, yeah. which – is embarrassing that that was a paradigm shift for me because it's so obvious <laughs> but anyway so many of us are raised though you know yeah. and, and i think about even i think there's something about the structure of the internet that can kind of actively discourage that yeah. you know i think the mo the first place a lot of people encounter bible and theology is in debates where the point is to win and the point is to prove the other person is dumb or the point is to uh you know the point is to look better than the other yeah. person and i think that that approach to the world is just completely counterproductive uh and i think that you know i apparently there are some people out there who think they really need to protect the christianity from what john and i believe and i think the question i would just have for them is why like what what are you protecting people from what is what is the danger what is the harm um because that's i i guess i just don't see it but i'm always happy to be proven wrong so <laughs> yeah okay let's get to i did find some questions down here i'm going to address uh, some of the super chats first this one comes from uh, theo kapoor uh hope i pronounced that right um if that's not just a youtube name if that's an actual name theo kapoor 
why do mainline denominations seem to be more socially conservative in non-Western countries like the method? like the Methodist church that I was expecting that to be a non-Western country there at the end, but it was the Methodist church. Uh, so I don't know if that's actually the case or if you're familiar, if that's the case or not, but uh, if you have an answer for that, if you don't uh, no, but I don't really know. I, I think they're referring to the, uh, certain and constituencies, constituencies of the United Methodist church. That are a bit right, more conservative. Yeah. You get the same sort of thing in the Anglican community, right, right there. Right, right, yeah. um, I don't know. I mean, those. I guess in some places, those cultures might be more conservative. You know, probably. I think that yeah. is probably a place to start. Um, there's probably a lot more. One thing I would just guess about, like Africa and the Global South, for instance, is that there's more cross pollination with local evangelical denominations. Um, you know, that too. yeah, yeah. evangelicalism think, uh, is growing so the, fast there. Yeah, yeah the, the trendy answer to that has been it's the result of colonialism. Colonialism, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, yeah, which there may be a, a sort of element of truth to that. I don't really know. I haven't studied that. Yeah, I also yeah. wish that I could talk to a Methodist friend right now and be like, hey, I know, what do you think that is? I know. We need to get Brad on the line. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought it was a good question. I have no idea. Uh, I don't yeah. know that much about the mainline church at all. Uh, that's yeah. why I'm having so, conversations yeah. like this. Yeah. Uh, this so one mind yeah. is that like uh, just because we're mainline Christians doesn't mean we really know everything about the other denomination that's right. sort of next to us. You guys so, don't like, know everything about everybody yeah, across yeah. the world. It, Come it's on, it's that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm just not that familiar with. Yeah, that's UMC. a good question though. Yeah, it's a great. Uh, question. It could be a, literally a million things I was thinking of, but um, okay, this one comes from Maverick Christian and. Uh, he wants to know about the passage in Isaiah. I think it's specifically as this is addressing the subject of penal substitution. Uh, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, uh, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. I love reading that passage in the tone that I just read it. So, <laughs> It's, really it's, very, it's very yeah. Mel Gibson. Uh, I mean, I think one thing I would start with is that you're reading it in translation. And I don't know what about this passage, but it actually changes quite a bit between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. Um, the Masoretic text being the Hebrew text of the New, of the Old Testament, Septuagint being the, the Greek. Um, so I, there's some shit in the language that's happening there about what exactly is happening to the servant. And I think that I would, you know, just put a pin in that it kind of depends which version you're reading, how substitutionary it is. But um, do you have, I don't know much about Isaiah 53. Um, it tends to not really come up a whole lot in the church. Well, yeah. the, I mean, the way that this gets used is in, is if in, in various places is Paul especially yeah. referencing this text or when he's talking about Jesus. Yeah. Or yeah. Mm -hmm. um, that tends to be like how it's it's brought up into the atonement conversation. I don't think Isaiah 53 on its own is, I, I, I don't know why we would go there for a kind of, to, to build our house on penal substitution, right? Um, I, yeah. I, I don't know. Um, it's because Paul doesn't really trot it out very much. No. Um, it also depends on what sort of punishment it is. Right? Like, Punishment can mean all sorts of things. Yeah. You mean like restorative as opposed no, to... No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, not... Yeah. Penal substitution depends on a, a retributive account of justice that's being enacted, right? Mm -hmm. 
is that the case in Isaiah 53, just because there's punishment language? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because when you punish a child, it's not retributive. You're not getting revenge on your kid. Well, maybe you are. I don't know. Maybe you're a terrible parent. <laughs> you know, but generally, you know, chastisement is for restoration. It's for growth. It's for development. So, you know, just, just because you have punishment language doesn't necessarily mean it's retributive. Um, but I also, you know, Ian would be the guy to, yeah. Ian Mills would be the yeah. guy to ask. Seems like it. it's going to hinge upon how you define penal substitution. Right. Yeah. And also what text of Isaiah 53 you're using. Yeah. yeah. And also like in. How in, much does it actually Paul, apply? Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. In Paul's yeah. potential use of this. Uh, verses out of this passage. Yeah. What is he pulling through yeah. into? What's his function of the? Yeah. Um, yeah right. And even if he is pulling in certain words from this text, how is he activating them? Right. What is he doing right. with them? Right. So there's a whole bunch of different questions that need to be asked. Yeah. About that. So okay. yeah. Okay. Uh, is Laura an apologist now? Her, has her views <laughs> on apologetics changed? The answer is yes. Obviously she is. Um, I wasn't joking earlier when I introduced her. You think, I, you think I joke on here? This place is serious. Uh, let's see, what would you advise? What would you advise a married married couple um, who now views scriptures uh, differently, views scripture differently, um, but are still Christian? It's causing conflict. So uh, I hate to put you in like a marriage counseling situation, but. Uh, yeah, if that's if that was uh, I wasn't actually sure how that question was going to end when I started it. So if it was kind of too serious. yeah, I was, say, I was like this could go a lot of ways. <laughs> but no, I mean, how do you how do you deal with conflict over scripture? I mean, I think read it together. Do you guys have yeah. disagreements of uh, theology sometimes. I yeah, mean, we definitely like, do. I mean, not major, not huge ones, and also definitely not ones that probably affect our day to day life very mm-hmm. much. Um, I mean, I guess one thing I would say is, you know, what's the what's the most important thing? Is an orthopraxic reading of scripture or is it showing Christ-like love to your spouse? Like, what's the example that's really set for us um, by by the life of Jesus? You know, I, I, I think I would just encourage people to, I think it's hard to prioritize that and to go wrong, you know? Um, so I think that would just be my answer. Yeah, but I... Read it together. Pray together yeah. when you're reading it. Like, ask for the discernment of the, the Holy Spirit to help yeah. you read the text well together. Um, Talk about it. Yeah. Don't get defensive. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's, I guess that's what I'd say. So. Okay, so Doug, Doug's in the live chat. What's up, Doug? Uh, he had numerous questions. Sorry, Doug. You, <laughs> you know I can't address all your questions right now, but I'm trying to pick out one that I want to ask. Um, let's see. Is there anything? Yeah, I thought I was Doug. Kind, yeah. kind, kind of off topic a little bit, but is there anything in the Gospels that you think is uh, – sorry, I have the reading level of like a fifth grader. I'm sorry. Okay, so is is does uh, is there anything in the Gospels that the Gospels report as Jesus having said that you don't think Jesus actually said? Um, I think his – yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean the one that comes to mind immediately is – uh, John the Baptist objecting to uh, to um, baptizing Jesus and Jesus saying, you know, let it happen to fulfill all righteousness. I think that's pretty clearly something Matthew wrote to make uh, to make Jesus' baptism make sense. Uh, I think that is almost certainly Matthew himself. Um, I mean, the, you know, the the cheap yeah, answer yeah. is every word of it because it's in Greek. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. 
That's yeah. good. That's a good one. I like that answer. Yeah. yeah. yeah um, you know. But I think the. <laughs> yeah, he didn't say he didn't say a word of it except like Maranatha, I guess. Man. <laughs> but, uh, it's gonna know. be a next title of like my next video or blog or something. It's gonna be Jesus didn't say anything that's written in the New Testament. <laughs> uh, but and then there's also the aspect of I know like, but I don't know anybody that believes this, so it's not much of a point. It's like I don't think anybody believes that every word in the new testament that is like we, we didn't have okay we are back live sorry guys i think everything should be fine i don't know what that looks like on y'all's end but on our end it kind of disconnected from going live uh so yeah. i'm back on uh hope everything sounds... the holy spirit that arrived and <laughs> it, the holy, well, live, live stream. <laughs> that's that's not good for us because it seems no, like the not. holy spirit is trying to cut us off like maybe we should <laughs> Um, before I hit the live button, we should have recollected ourselves and decided where we were at in that conversation. No, right before. Do you remember how many words Jesus said? And that, yeah, you know, yeah, I don't think anybody believes that Jesus literally said every single word of the New Testament. It's more like a summary. Like, yeah, he probably said something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I probably grew up with people who would say that, but, uh, you know, but yeah, I, yeah. yeah. People probably do say that, but they don't actually really commit to New that. Testament. Oh, yeah. I mean, if they thought about it for like five seconds, they would probably yeah. write it up. Uh, I don't know. Uh, New Testament scholars don't say it, you know, so, yeah. you know, but, but we also don't say a lot of things. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it has, dang it. So that stinks. It did away with all the other. The questions from the other live chat on my end so i can't see them um but that that's okay we have dressed a lot and we've been going for over an hour now so thank you everybody and i addressed all the super chats and that's all that really matters right now i'm just kidding people it's okay but um so yeah thanks so much uh for joining me guys i really appreciate it thanks so much to the audience for joining us um sorry if i didn't get to address your question or anything like that um, I hope you found tonight's conversation beneficial, of course, and uh, I certainly did, and I hope we can have more conversations like this um, between conservatives and um, progressives uh, and different things like that, so I hope this was instructive for people. Um, but yeah, uh, Laura, John, thanks so much for agreeing to do this. John, we're definitely going to have to have John back on whenever that book comes out. Sure, but, yeah. uh, Great. I'm sure we'll have both of you back on before. Um, as long as this channel goes on. So we'll just see how it goes. Right time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. For sure. Thanks, yeah. you. We do these.